Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. All right. Welcome to Asking Why Podcast with Clint Davis. This is episode 31. Um, we're thankful to have you guys listening and uh, following along. Um, hope these things have been helpful. Today is just me again. Um, we're going to do a talk through um, kind of family systems, trauma, trauma responsive care. Um, one of the things I think a lot of times um, we take for granted as clinicians and pastors is, and just people in general is just the uh, what we know and what we're trained in and what we experience and then what we forget that the average person just maybe never has heard. And, and my wife will remind me a lot of times cause I kind of think, Oh, well I say this a lot or we talk about this a lot and everybody knows it. Um, but you know, we don't really think about where things come from and how they affect the present. And so what I want to do today is just kind of talk through uh, a couple of different models. I've integrated a bunch of things that I've learned, but uh, <clears throat> this will be focused, you know, some biblical truth, but also what's called restoration therapy. Uh, Terry Hargrave is, a fantastic therapist and one of my professors out at Fuller. And so he came up with this model. And so I, I picked some of that to use and, um, and this just integrate my own thoughts and experience and theology into it. Um, so, you know, the title in this, I guess, you know, is origins and kind of where do we come from and how does that work? And so, you know, we uh, first let's start with kind of um, this idea of forming identity. And so one of the things we, we have to do to be healthy individuals is we have to be able to speak out of a foundation um, and an identity based on who we are, who God thinks we are. And as Christians, you know, that's got to be primary. And so in Proverbs, it talks about, um, in Proverbs 27, 19, it says, as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. And so we know that our hearts were designed by God um, to receive love and trust from the Lord and to be able to be in relationship with Him. And so many times we grow up in families where, and we talked about this last week a little bit, where that's not necessarily what was modeled, that they didn't get the love and the safety that they needed, and so they didn't know how to pass it down to us. But we deserved and God intended for us to receive love and love and security, essentially. And so a parent's job, scripturally, is very clear that, you know, it, Colossians says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Ephesians talks about not exacerbating your child. Right. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction for the Lord. Proverbs says, start children off in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. A garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. And then lastly, 2 Timothy says, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so I think a lot of us grew up in a church culture and a church family where um, we thought we were in a Christian home. We thought we were getting what scripture was saying, but it was just coming maybe on Sundays or maybe on Wednesday nights from the pastor or youth group. 
but we didn't see it actually lived out in our family day to day, moment to moment, situation to situation. Um, and I think that's what living a congruent, healthy biblical life is. It's, it's not, you know, the Bible's this thing and, and this worldview and, and Jesus's teachings are this narrative that we might pick and choose when to use, but that have to be integrated into everything that we're doing. And scripture is obviously very clear, clear about that. Well, if you grow up in a home where that isn't done, let's say you grow up in a family that's not religious or that's not uh, faith-based, there, then there's going to be some deficits because by the time you've grown up and you're 17 or 18 or an adult and you realize you hear the gospel for the first time or you see someone living out a gospel life for the first time, then it may be your first experience with the truth of the gospel. You might have thought you knew what it was and you knew what that meant, but experiencing is very, very different. And so what we have to realize is that those those deficits are, are there. And so it might be a spiritual one. It might be an emotional deficit. You know, like I said, years without the gospel. Um, and then we might not have an example of marriage in our life. I mean, 50-something percent of us grow up in a divorced home. And so what we learn and what we grow up in is, is you know, that primary relationships are, are not forever. That relationships, intimate relationships between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, they don't they might not last forever and they could be broken down and so we begin to build narratives around um these things in our lives and we we believe them to be true and, and a narrative is just a story a way of looking at the world a way of understanding how the world works and as kids we have these unconscious things we're learning and experiencing that we think are true just because our parents or our worldview or our community is doing that and as we grow obviously we find out it's not Another deficit may be, you know, like we talked about multiple times on here is, you know, not teaching about healthy sexuality and then just poor boundaries. Maybe the parent was very permissive and let you do whatever you want, or maybe they were very rigid. But the point is, is that we, when we're born, we have these deficits. We're not born perfect. We're not born all together. And we actually have what we call epigenetics, the study of kind of generations of sin and brokenness that is also feeding into who we are as a child. And so we, we, to understand our identity and to form our identity as we grow as teenagers and as adults, and as we walk with Jesus and get more sanctified, we have to understand where we come from. We have to kind of go back to go forward. And so we have these broken foundations. So if we go back to the core of what we need, we need love and trust. So you have a father and a mother who are born into a family system, who come out of parenting from their parents, who, who come out of their parenting, and on and on and on. It goes back to Adam and Eve. But us as a child, you who's listening to this right now, you, you are either parenting or have been parented. And you have this same issue. You have these same identity issues around love and trust, around love and security. And so these two things, I think, if you look at content, if you look at drugs and alcohol and anxiety and depression and and mental health and pornography and um, you know spending money and and credit card debt and all of the all of the behaviors that we see, you can trace it back to a thought and a feeling, and then you can trace it back to a belief around love and trust. So love and trust are the foundations of our lives, right? Without these two foundational beliefs, all of the struggles of our lives will be difficult to manage. And so we all have different history with these beliefs. We each have our own experiences with how we were raised and how these issues continue to affect our ministries and our families today. So let's talk about what love means, because I think that's another problem um, that we get caught up in in life is that we say words 
that we think everybody means the same things, but we don't. And so I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were telling me that about this relationship and in high school and it was the first person they fell in love with and then it led into this and that. And, you know, we, the reality was by the end of the conversation was, well, did you really love the person or were you infatuated with the person? Because did you even know what love meant? And so what love means to me and what it means scripturally is that we, we are valued, we are desired, we are wanted, we are seen, we are known. Right, We can show love through words of affirmation, hugs, kisses, eye contact, quality time, acts of service. You know, Those are kind of the five love languages. Um, and we need to feel valuable and wanted internally. Right, Our love for ourselves cannot be based on others' opinions or performance, looks, wealth, or ability. Love, have to be, love has to be something that is not dictated by external sources. Like That's the big thing I try to work on with people is so much of us are trying to get our love and our our value from other things, from how much money we make, what we look like, um, our careers, our par- even our parenting, you know, our marriages. Um, we're like, okay, if I get this done or this person's happy with me or I look this way, then I'll finally feel worthy of love. And, and that comes from our family history, our attachment, our early on, our issues. So you are loved and valuable because you are who you are, right? This goes for both parents and children. And so some violations of love and trust are things like feeling unloved, unwanted, broken, dirty, disgusting, not good enough, not pretty enough, too bad, a failure, disrespected. These are, these are the belief systems that say that you aren't loved and you aren't valued and you aren't worthy. And so the, the opposite of that is trust, right? And, and trust asks, are relationships safe? Is the world safe? Are people safe? Is God safe? So you have love on one hand that's a foundation. Am I worthy? Am I good enough? Am I known? Am I special? Am I unique? And then we have trust, which says, am I safe? Are people safe? Is God safe? Is the world safe? So we have these two foundations, um, love and trust. And so my point in talking about this is that if there are violations of love and trust in your life, then early on in your childhood your view of yourself and your view of other people is going to be very distorted. And you're going to have this lens in which you look through everything. And so if you grow up in a house where there's addiction in the family, where you moved infrequently, where there was violence in the home, maybe poverty, violence in the neighborhood, divorce, then there's, those are significant violations of trust. And so you tend to be very um, scared of relationships and intimacy and situations on the other end, if, you're, if your family is abusive, is verbally abusive, is emotionally abusive, right? There's these violations of love. They tell you you're stupid. They tell you you're not enough. Or they just behave in a way where you feel like you have to perform to earn their love, to get their love. Then that's a violation of love. And so uh, Terry Hargrave talks about this all the time, that these are the kind of the foundations of um, what gives us identity and what gives us safety. And so... Um, Every time that these things happen, they cause pain. These violations of love and trust, they cause pain and, and it hurts. And so it hurts us emotionally, it hurts us physically, it hurts us spiritually, right? And sometimes all at the same time. All right, so why, why is it important to think about love and trust in these, violation, in these violations? Well, like we talked about earlier, the violations of love are, are those feelings of, you know, being unwanted, being broken. A lot of times people with sexual abuse, sexual trauma, they feel dirty or broken, well, violations of trust are things like addiction in the family, uh, moving moving frequently, violence in the neighborhood, poverty, 
violence in the home, divorce. And so if you have a violation of love and trust, it causes pain. It, it hurts because God did not ex- expect us or want us to experience these violations. He wanted us to be in the Garden of Eden with shalom and harmony and perfection. And instead, we are in the world and, and people are in pain and hurt people hurt people. And so we have parents and families and situations and, and life that can cause us harm intentionally or unintentionally. And when that happens, it hurts. It hurts us emotionally. It hurts us physically. It hurts us spiritually. And this pain, this emotional or physical or spiritual pain, sometimes all three, it causes us to react, to do something, to cope. And so our brains and our bodies are respond or respond to pain, and we learn to try to say, hey, I don't, I don't want to hurt like that anymore. And so, you know, there's three major ways we do this. We attack, we run away, or we shut down. And so that was, that's what we call the fight, flight, or freeze responses. You know, we attack by yelling and, and saying things or hitting or being violent. We run away, we withdraw, and then we shut down. There's also two newer ones, fawn, which is kind of go belly up and let people do what they want and um, let people get their way and kind of become the victim. And then there's sex. We use sex, and I won't say the F word on here, but that's what the other the other one. And so we manipulate with our body. We We get people to give us what we want. A lot of people who have been sexually abused or had tra- have been trafficked or have been in the sexual in- sex industry, you know, that's the way that they cope with their pain and their trauma. And so what happens is, is these love and trust violations happen. It causes pain and we start to avoid that pain. And so it may be a kid that grows up in a home where dad is moves a lot. Dad is absent. He's not around. And what he hears and what he sees from his father is I'm not worth time. And, and that might not be the dad's intention at all. The, the dad might love the kid. He might be trying to work hard and provide everything the kid needs. But that child's experience of that is what's most important. The narrative that starts to be written for the child because the dad doesn't know any better. He doesn't know to go sit down and communicate with the child what's true. He's just trying to survive himself. He's working off of what he's equipped with. But what happens in the child's brain is that he starts to form ruts, these neuropathways in, their, in the brain to say, I need, I need connection. I need dopamine. I need serotonin. I need these things to help me survive. And I'm not getting them from my father. And that for the kid gets interpreted mostly as something's wrong with me and I need to react and I need to be, and I need to do so that I don't feel this pain. I don't feel this abandonment. I don't feel unloved or unsafe. And so we start to form these habits, these instant unconscious responses to dad being absent or dad not showing up or mom being rigid or mom yelling or whatever the scenario is that's going on. And so these habits typically go with negative coping. And so kids will get these hangups and these habits and these negative thoughts and feelings. And what that eventually does is it impacts the sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of the gas pedal. And we just go with it instantly without thought. And so in relationship, what that looks like is, is um, Terry Hargrave, points out these kind of four coping mechanisms. One is blame and rage. So I'm in, I feel a violation of love and trust. I'm in pain. I've formed these habits and these responses from my childhood. And now I'm an adult and I'm in a marriage situation or I'm at work or I'm at church and it's everybody else's fault that I feel this way. And we just react. I'm super mad about it and I'm ticked off and it's your fault or it's black people's fault. It's white people's fault. It's the cops. It's policing. It's, um, you know, 
Democrats or Republicans, everybody else's fault but mine that I'm in this pain. If they'd stop being the way they are, I would be okay. The second one is shame. We look at ourselves and we say, man, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. If I was prettier, if I was taller, if I was better, then these things wouldn't happen to me. We say, well, this always happens to me in relationships. This always happens to me. Every guy I meet does this. Every girl I meet does this. Every job I ever had does this. I'm the common denominator. I'm terrible. And remember that there's a difference between shame and guilt. Guilt, guilt is what I'm doing is not who I want to be and how I'm, li- how, how I'm living my life is not who I'm capable of. And that makes me feel bad. We should feel guilty. We should feel convicted. We want to be better than we're being if we have behavior that's not who we are. Shame is I'm worthless. I can't do better. I am bad within myself and there's nothing I can do about it. The third one is control. So we micromanage, we organize. It's the very OCD behaviors and tendencies. It can be a thought. It can be an action. But we we manipulate people. We lie. We have to gain control. There's no um, there's no way out. Right. That would be a very rigid boundary. And then lastly, chaos. Chaos is withdrawing. So we withdraw to you know work. We withdraw to work out. We withdraw to watch porn. We withdraw to drink or drug. We we remove ourselves from the situation emotionally. So blame and rage, shame, control, and chaos, withdrawing, these are all the ways that we cope with various violations of love and trust. And so the problem with all of this is that from a Christian perspective, from a theological perspective, these things are not true. These lies that we hear about our love and our safety are not true. They are from the devil. They're from Satan. They're from these spiritual warfare things. And so John eight forty four says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so if you remember our belief shapes, our thoughts and feelings would shape our actions. So if we, if we grow up in a house in a home and in a culture telling us that our worth and value comes from performance, comes from our looks, comes from external things, telling us that we have to earn love, that we have to earn security, that we have to earn respect, then we start forming beliefs that also validate that, that say, yeah, okay, kid, innocent kid who, you know, is just growing up, not knowing anything, you've got to perform, you got to make all A's, you've got to do good in school, you've got to, you know, keep mom happy, you've got to keep the conflict at home resolved, you've got to take care of your brother and your sister, you've got to do all these things, and then we'll love you. And then we'll be proud of you. And then we'll put some safety in place. Then we'll stop hitting you. We'll stop yelling at you. We'll stop screaming at you. If you do these things, then you'll earn love. And what that forms in us is this belief and this um, neuropathway and this connection to I have got to change who I am and build my identity around everything outside of me. And we see that in our culture all the time now. We see that with lots of things, man, we, we we're seeing it big time in 2021. And so we have got to, as a church, as people start to figure out, look at our own lives and our own hearts and our own coping and start tracing back. Where does this stuff come from? And how is, how is, what do I actually believe? You know, I tell people a lot of times, you know, seven, eight sessions in, I'll ask people, especially if they claim, you know, Christianity, I'll say, well, you know, you seem really upset today. What's going on with you? You know, if God's looking at you right now, what do you think that he thinks? And unfortunately, seven or eight out of 10 people will put their hands in their head 
on their face and, and cry or lean over and say, I think he's really disappointed. And it breaks my heart and also makes me happy because I get to tell them, well, that, that's not the gospel. That's not true. So you're living your life on a foundation of untruths that are shaping your thoughts and feelings, which are shaping your behaviors. And the whole world's telling you, just change your behavior. You know, don't think like that. Change your behavior. Stop smoking. Stop drinking. Stop, you know, get on a diet. Um, you know, do something different with your behavior and you'll be happy. But the reality is if you don't get in there to the roots and change your beliefs about yourself, about God, about other people, it, it's not going to help you. You'll be able to temporarily fix it. You'll be able to white knuckle it. You'll be able to put a Band-Aid over a bullet hole. But the bleeding's going to be there. The wound's going to be there. And it's just going to fester and fester until the next stressing point, the next crisis, the next moment. And then we're going to go right back to those negative beliefs about ourselves, God, and others. And so what we have to do is we, we have to do the work ourselves. We have to take personal responsibility and say, okay, I need help. I have these things that are going on, these behaviors, let's say, that I'm worried about that people are pointing out that I need to deal with, whether it's anger, greed, or selfishness, I need to take into account these, these behaviors. Now they don't matter as much as my, who I am and my identity, but obviously if I have these behaviors, I can't control then I need to trace back where they come from. And that means me doing some, some work. And so we call that reparenting yourself, right? And so there's three primary ways that we can do this. We can get in the word and we can figure out what does God's word say about us? Because reading the Bible is not just reading a, a what-to-do manual. It is telling us and showing us the narrative of who God says we are and how he treats his people. And so if we go to the idea of love, there are thousands of scriptures that point to how much God loves us and you as, indiv as an individual. He, he loves us so much that he gave his only son. He loves us unconditionally, right? And so you have to figure out what it is that you believe about what God thinks about you. And then we have to look at what does God do around our safety and our security? Is he providing for us? Is he taking care of us? What kind of God is he? Because if we have a view of God that says he isn't loving or that he isn't secure, then that's going to shape everything. And maybe you're non-Christian. Maybe you're listening to this podcast and you don't know anything about Christianity. Well, the reality is, is that you have to form, you have to figure out a belief in your own life. And I work with non-Christians all the time, and we don't talk about Scripture, and we don't talk about Jesus, but we get to a point where they realize that they are trying to find worth and value and security in external things. And so the question I always have is, well, then how do you have internal worth and value without those things? How do you know that you're worthy and valuable? And so people will say, well, I'm good. You know, let me just be a good person. And so we go through session after session and, and what, and not me, but they come back saying, well, I'm not a good person. I mean, I lie, I cheat, I steal. I have these behaviors that based on the world standard and based on my standard, don't make me good because I'm not perfect. And so we go through this, you know, idea and, and, and wrestle with that. So you're going to have to, if you're not a Christian, if you're not foundational in what God's word, you're going to have to figure out how you, what you believe about yourself and other people and, and the world because that's shaping everything um, that you think and feel and all of your behaviors, and they're all connected. And the second thing we need is trusted others, right? We need other people in our lives who know what God's word is, know who, what he thinks about us, and they believe that, and they think and treat us the same way. 
So they believe we're worthy of love. They believe we're worthy of security. They believe we can do this. We can make it. We can overcome. We can recover. Our marriages can work. Our parenting can work. Our financial situation can work. And they're with us. The problem is, is that, so I have a best friend, CJ. And so if we go back to um, the idea of love violations, right? These, these beliefs. A lot of times I'll ask people, what do you feel? And people don't know. You know, they can only say, I, I feel sad or I'm mad. Lots of times it's right. I'm, I'm ticked off. I'm angry. And so we have to look at it and go, well, hold on. Anger, anger typically is a secondary emotion. It's not primary. Meaning if you think about it like a big volcano, anger comes out the top of it. But underneath that anger, right, is shame, is guilt, is loneliness, is feeling unloved, is feeling dirty, is feeling broken. You know, these words. And so, you know, some words aren't going to mean anything for some people. You know, one of, one of my words is unknown or has been. It's not as much anymore. Um, but as I grew up, you know, just feeling unknown, feeling like people didn't know my heart, wanting people to know my heart. And anytime people would question my intentions, it was really triggering. And that comes from trauma in my past and family systems issues and stuff in my past. And, and so now, I re, you know, I, I realized I had to tell my friends, my Bible study, my community members, my, my closest people, Hey man, I really struggle with feeling unknown and feeling like my heart's, if my heart's questioned that being really upsetting. And so now I can call my friend CJ and if I'm upset about something, something with work, something with the podcast, something with therapy, something, my marriage, something, my kids, something, my family, whatever the thing is I'm going to call him for, cause I call him for a lot. He'll typically say, dude, are you feeling unknown? Why? Because he knows my word, right? He knows what my violations of love and trust are and he knows what's going to come up and so do I. And so he's able to minister to me, love on me, support me with truths around my specific attack, right? Around the things that I'm wounded in the most. So how can you do all that if you've never figured out what you feel, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about other people? You can't. And so we wonder why our behaviors are flying off the handle or out of control or not manageable it's because we have not figured out where our behaviors come from, that they've come from these thoughts and feelings and come from these belief systems, which means we have to go back and deconstruct and figure out, you know, where these belief systems come from. And then lastly, ourself, we have to start to believe it. We have to do the work. We have to go to therapy. We have to, you know, get in the word. We have to get in a Bible study. We have to get in with situations that are going to heal these wounds, going to heal this trauma. And so, Let's just talk about a couple of biblical truths about love, right? Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant to love to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. So if you listen to this and you doubt God's love, Scripture tells us emphatically that he loves us, that he chose us in him before the creation of the world, Ephesians says, to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us to be his adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of the glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves in Jesus. Right. It's saying that God has chosen you and adopted you before you were made and before the world to be loved, to be known for his grace, because he's good and he is love. First John says, anyone who does not no love does not know God because God is love. And if you experience God, if you experience that God in creation, if you experience God in people, you know that to be true. And Psalms 36, 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. 
So there's all this truth about love. And then Psalms 27, we're talking about safety. The Lord is my light, my salvation, whom shall I fear? It was one of my favorite Bible verses that I would read when I was in the army. Whether, you know, if we were in a situation that was dangerous, if we were going into a, a terrible, you know, horrible accident or something we had to deal with in Katrina, whatever, I would read Psalm 27 to our group, to our unit. And, you know, just this idea that he, God has got this. Um, Second Thessalonians says, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. In Psalms, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It's one thing we have a hard time with, you know, it's God, Jesus tells us to forgive seven, seven times 70, but he doesn't tell us to trust everybody. He actually says, trust in Lord, to take refuge in the Lord, not in humans. That doesn't mean don't trust, but it, what it means is, is that we should be focusing on God's plan, God's sovereignty, not the trust in the consistency of man, because they're going to fail us. We're all going to fail each other. And Psalm 68 says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, God is holy in his dwelling. And so what we have to know is that what's true is that we are loved, we are valued, we are worthy, we are known, we are special by the God of the universe, and we are also secure in his care. Now, obviously, we can be hurt physically and emotionally in the world, but God is working those things out for good. And so our worth and value is our identity is, has to be in Christ, right? Our worth and value is not based on eternal, external things, right? Scripture says that we... So one of the problems that people have with this is that they struggle with this idea that they, if God's looking down on them, that, that he isn't disappointed in their sin. And the thing is, is God does hate sin. He, he doesn't like sin. And, and sin is, in my opinion, kind of the, the absence of God when, when we're, it's not necessarily, you know, drinking or drugging that is sin, although it's sinful behavior. It's our heart posture when we're doing those things. Because again, why would someone do those things? Well, somebody smoking crack is smoking crack because they feel insecure, they feel unsafe, they're in pain, and they want to cover that pain up. Well, why do they want to cover that pain up? Because they feel unloved, they feel unworthy, they feel worthless. A person who's in prostitution, they're not prostituting themselves out because they feel loved and they feel secure. They're doing those behaviors because they already a long time ago had violations of love and trust that told them their worth and value was nothing. They had someone sexually abuse them when they were young that told them that their security and their safety was nothing and violated. And that caused great pain. And that pain over time led them to say, well, I am worthless and I am nothing. So what's the point? I might as well do things that make me feel good. And so people sit and they go, well, I've done all these things. I know I've done all these things. I, I'm not worthy. God has to hate me for my sin and, and for all my behaviors. And yet scripture says we're hidden in Christ, that we wa we're washed white as snow that our sins are cast from the east to the west, that we're redeemed, that we're restored, that we're made new. So we, we, we can't be all those things and God be disappointed, right? He's not, up, he's not up looking down at me, although I feel like it sometimes, right? We all do, and face palming because of my dumb decisions. He's not like, oh my gosh, Clint, what an idiot, you know, right? He, we're hidden in Christ, meaning if you're in, in Jesus, you're washed, you're covered by his blood. That means when, when God looks down at me, when he looks down at you, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' sacrifice. He sees his sons and daughters, and he loves us. Now, as Paul talks about, that doesn't mean just keep going and sinning because of that grace. That would be a misunderstanding, right? It's not, I need to behave this way so God loves me. It's God loves me, so I want to behave this way. I want to stay in good relationship with him. Right, so what we want to do is 
if we can believe that, if we can live in a state every day where we feel loved and we feel secure, then instead of being in pain, we can be in peace. Right? You wonder why certain people in the world can walk around in all the chaos and they have that, they have peace. That doesn't mean that they're happy and they're content and they don't have moments of struggle, but it means that their foundation is solid, that, that they believe in their worth and value. They don't let external things dictate that and they don't let external things dictate their security. They lose a job, their financial thing hits a, a, a you know dip, somebody gets sick. They sell a house, they sell a car, they make some adjustments, they do what they have to do because their their peace isn't reliant on external things, it's reliant on internal things than the one that made them. And then, if we live in that peace, when something happens, when there's another violation of love and trust, when there's another trigger, then instead of being triggered, we can be responsive and instead of blaming everybody, we can be encouraging. We can say, hey, you're better than this or tell me why you're this angry or... Help me to help you. Instead of shaming ourselves, we can be encouraging. We can have positive self-talk. We can tell ourselves the truths of what our therapist has said or what our pastor has said or what our friends have said or what our experience has been that's been good that's not those lies and those manipulations from Satan and from people. Instead of controlling, there can be a balance of give and take. It doesn't always have to go our way. You know, schedules can change. People can mess up. People can make mistakes, and we don't have to feel so unsafe and insecure and disrespected. And then lastly, instead of withdrawing and causing chaos, we can stay connected. We can sit with people and connect with them. The problem, the problem we have is listening to things that aren't true. And we live in a postmodern, post-postmodern world now where we're getting told more and more by everybody that everybody has different truths and your truth is, you know, your truth and you can do what you want to. And that's fine. I mean, that's a, a narrative to have. Unfortunately, there are, there are truths and there are lies. And so I challenge you to do the work in your own heart. You know, this is not to focus on other people and tell them what they need to do. I do like that message of you, you know, you got to do, do you. But at the end of the day, doing you means finding out what's true for you um, and making that congruent with the rest of your life. So, you know, the reality is, is that part of restoration, part of restoration therapy is helping people to go back and deconstruct and break down those belief systems, those lies, so that they can start moving forward, forming new neuropathways. And, and part of therapy allows you to do that. Um, because you're in a safe environment. You're with somebody who uh, is trained, can work with you, can help you, um, who you can practice being upset, being disrespectful, being frustrated, having these negative coping, and they don't take it personally. They allow you, they give you the space to be connected. And so I think that I encourage everybody to go to therapy, to go to somebody who's trauma-trained, who understands addiction, who understands... I mean, if you're a Christian, I would hope they understand theology, that they can make Jesus make sense in a practical way when it comes to trauma, when it comes to addiction. And that's one thing at our practice that we're really trying to get out there and educate people on. And the reason we're doing this podcast is, man, there's a lot of good people in the world doing good stuff, but we just want to do it in an integrated way um, where people who are Christians can have healthy therapy, good therapy, um, but also be able to integrate their faith and their beliefs. But that means we have to really do some work as, as Christ followers to 
to, for it not just to be a Sunday thing, for it to be an everyday thing, a moment to moment thing. And then maybe we have some beliefs in our lives about God and about the Bible and about people that aren't true. And if they are true, we need to start living that way. And if they're not true, we need to de- deconstruct them and, and form some new belief systems so we have some better thoughts and feelings and some better actions. I, uh, I want to leave with just this idea of, you know, all this Terry stuff, the trauma stuff that I talked about, all, all this is integrated with a bunch of different people that come up with little different pieces. And I'm just trying to piece it together, but you know, you can throw all that out and look at Jesus's life. And he was the greatest therapist there ever was. He was, um, trauma responsive and trauma informed before that was a thing that we've come up with in the last decade. And so there's a story of the woman at the well and Jesus comes up and he, he ministers to this woman and she says, um, you know, do you want some water? And he, he offers her the living water that he has. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that people preach this story and tell the sermon, the points that they want to make. But I think my, my favorite part of it from a therapy standpoint is, and why therapy is so important to me and, and other people and can be helpful is, you know, he, he tells her this and then he says, go and get your husband. And she says, I haven't had, I don't have a husband. And he says, I know that you don't have a husband. I, you have five husbands and the guy you're with now isn't your husband. And it's in that moment that I think real trauma therapy works because he, you know, when people come into therapy, they have all this pain and all this baggage and all these insecurities and these secrets. And for us as clinicians, if you're, if you're good, if you're trained, if you know what you're doing, you, you know that, right? We don't expect people to come in and be hundred percent honest the first session or even the first six months sometimes because we're not, we go, you know, for me, I go to therapy. I know I'm not hundred percent honest with my therapist all the time. There's, Tons of times I'm like, Ugh, I don't really want to unpack this or deal with this issue or acknowledge this sin or this brokenness or this pride or, you know, whatever it is. And so I withhold. <laughs> it takes me a few sessions and then I'll, it'll come out and I'll deal with it. Sometimes I just jump in there, but it just depends. We all, we have this. So if you're a therapist who goes to therapy, you know that your client is struggling. You have patience, you have empathy for them. And that's what Jesus did at the well. He, he already knew this woman's story. But what was so impactful and so powerful to me is that he he let her tell her version of it. He didn't sit down and say, "Oh, you have you know you've had five husbands, you know, and you know you're divorced, and the guy you're with is not your husband." He said, "Go get your husband," and he allowed her to then say, "I don't have a husband." And when he said to her, "I know you don't," and he kind of called her on her stuff, she knew instantly. He knew the whole time. And man, what a what a graceful, loving thing. I mean, if you've ever been with somebody and told them something or been in conflict with them, and let's say they've been patient with you, or let's say you've walked all over them or taken advantage of them. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a spouse. And then later you find out that the whole time, you know, they were praying for you or they were caring for you or they were putting up with it patiently, but they knew that you had cheated or they knew that you had lied or they knew that you had been, you know, wronged. Or you find out that you were wrong the whole time and they were right the whole time and now you're going back and apologizing. There's nothing better than that moment because it builds so much trust. And so Jesus knew that. He he allowed her to tell her own version of the story. He was therapeutic in that. And yeah, at the end, he said, go and sin no more. He said, you know, stop doing your behavior. But he wasn't so focused on the behavior. And so part of this this whole world of being a Christian and living with people and dealing with people is that we've got to love people like Jesus, not our version of Jesus, not the narrative that somebody's told us, but the way he behaved, the way he acted. 
And the more I get closer to him, the more I realize that all the science and all the trauma therapy and all the teachings that I'm learning and have learned, they pair very well with the teachings of scripture. And so I challenge us as Christians that we can, we can do both. We can deal with science. We can deal with therapy and psychology and we can deal with Jesus and we can blend those two. And so they're, there are Christians out here that are good counselors, people like Ter- Dr. Terry Hargrave and his wife and, and tons of others. And so I, if, if you don't listen to me, go listen to their stuff. Um, you know, find other ways, Caroline Leaf, you know, different people that have books out there trying to integrate the teachings of jo- uh, psychology and the teachings of Jesus together. Because I think that's where we really understand in 2021 how we can move forward, how we can get healthy and how we can recover from all this pain from our past. So hope you have a good day. I hope this was helpful. Um, Hopefully next week, the week after, we'll have some guests and get back to our guests. Um, So God bless you guys. I hope you have a good week. Um, Take care of yourself. If you need something, please email us. Subscribe to the channel. uh, Like the podcast on iTunes or wherever it is you're listening to it. Uh, If you have any email, any questions, email us in at clintdaviscounseling at gmail.com. God bless.